came into the world very young, in an age that was very old. Welcome to Sonosphere, the podcast that explores the sounds all around us in art and music movements through history. We're your hosts. I'm Amy. And I'm Chris. This episode is part two of our series called Birth of Modern Music, where we showcase European composers that start a change in music, paving the way for avant-garde and disruptive sounds from the classical minimalist genre to the punk and rock and roll we hear today. We covered Austrian composer and modern music pioneer Arnold Schoenberg in our last episode. As Austrian and German composers were dabbling into new sounds, so too were the Parisian composers around the beginning of World War I, most notably the French Impressionists, Claude Debussy, Maurice Ravel, and Eric Satie. Today we'll focus on Eric Satie because of how his sonic experiments influenced modern avant-garde composers in America 50 years after his death, most notably through John Cage, an American minimalist. My name's Caroline Potter and I'm a reader in music, I think associate professor in American terms at Kingston University in London. I think the most interesting thing to me is the fact that he's part of such an exciting and vibrant culture in Paris of the period. I'm someone who's not only interested in music but also in literature, in art, and Satie is somebody who has active in different media, collaborating with so many interesting artists of his period. He's endlessly fascinating from that perspective. Cheryl Pickering, artistic director and soprano for the Australian collective Various People, said, He was a pioneer, not afraid to follow his personal and musical instincts. We admire his obstinate and proud sense of his own unique qualities. He operates slightly outside of the square, and he has a healthy irreverence for hierarchy and social convention. Satie was born in 1866 in Normandy to a French father and Scottish mother. After his mother's tragic death, he grew up with his grandparents in Normandy, while his father was in Paris teaching at the Paris Conservatoire. At this time, Satie began his first formal music lessons with organist Vinot at the Church of St. Leonard in Normandy. Satie then joined his father at the Paris Conservatoire in 1879. Satie struggled through his tenure there. The professors called him gifted but indolent and the laziest student at the conservatoire. He left the school in 1886 to join the army, but then allegedly purposely contracted bronchitis to get dismissed. Satie was kicked out by his father when he was 21 after an alleged affair with his father's mate. 
He rebelled with a vengeance and embraced the bohemian lifestyle. In his 20s, he was a part of the avant-garde scene in Paris, rubbing shoulders with Picasso, Debussy, and Ravel. It's really interesting that after the Franco-Prussian War, which was a disaster for France, we have about the most exciting artistic outpouring in France in French history. First of all, we see him being based in Montmartre, which was then a separate district. It's now part of Paris. It's to the north of the city on a hill. And one thing that was specific about Montmartre is it was the center for a lot of artists to gather, partly because um, taxes on alcohol were lower there. So it was a very gathering place. So Satie worked in Montmartre in the late 1880s, 1890s, largely as a cafe and cabaret pianist. Satie was a strange dude. He was known for weird behavior like eating only white food. Some cheeses. Turnips. Certain fish. Coconuts. Eggs and shredded bones. He also never spoke while eating because he thought he would kill himself by choking. He did not like the modern innovations like sound recording, radio, or even the telephone. He made friends take the phone off of the hook when he visited and reportedly only made phone calls to wealthy art patrons when he needed cash. He was an impoverished, uncompromising artist, which made his personal logic seem paranoid. He didn't take paid gigs and often didn't accept jobs if they paid too much. The opposite of many composers like Stravinsky, who turned down work because they paid too little. Satie was very intelligent, and his approach was of a different logic than his contemporaries, making him frustrated with the inadequacies of artists of his time. This often led him to binge on alcohol and stay up all night. Satie was somebody who was very difficult to get to know, partly because most people say he was very shy, and you know, that can be misunderstood. He also really liked to drink, and no doubt he sometimes had too much, and sadly he died of cirrhosis of the liver. So you know what people are like when they've had too much to drink, you know, they don't show the best of themselves, do they? Picasso understood Satie really well. He got on extremely well with him. Friend and Spanish poet Contamine de la Torre reminisced of their times together, saying, We didn't eat every day, but we never missed an aperitif. I remember a particular pair of trousers and a pair of shoes that used to pass from one to the other and which we had to mend every morning. According to Sam Sweet writing in The New Yorker, Satie's maniacal eccentricities eventually alienated him from the cultural establishment of Paris. By his early 30s, Satie moved to the unfashionable suburb of Arcule, where he made a living playing piano in cabarets. There, Satie wrote groups of haunting piano pieces that he called pieces in the shape of a pear. Satie was not popular among local elites. 
He was broke all of the time. He walked into Le Chat Noir and asked the director if he could get a job. He had had no recognizable professional occupation and presented himself as a gymnopedist, which is Greek for a festival where people dance naked. He did this supposedly in an attempt to outwit the director. So I think calling this first well-known piece of his the Gymnopédie, it's linked to this um, kind of idealized ancient Greek dance to be performed by naked people. So I think taking that word and then calling himself a gymnopédiste because he'd published a work of this title. He was just enjoying the sound of that word, I think, and no doubt plugging his own work too. It was the first composition he wrote that broke with traditional music of the time in Paris. It was regarded as a precursor to modern and ambient music. get to 1917 onwards, we see Satie inventing what he called musique d'ameublement, or furniture music, which was music deliberately conceived to be played in the background. So very, very short pieces of music designed to be played over and over again as often as you want. But what he does is he very often introduces flaws, so it's not like a perfect repetition. You get something really unexpected coming in that I think underlines the fact this is written for human beings and not for machines. I think the mechanical repetitive nature of Satie's music can be drawn from the kind of barrel music he was listening to on the streets of Montmartre. Barrel organ music tended to be usually popular tunes of the day that were repeated over and over again and usually played by people who were on the margins of society, people with no other way of earning a living. So I think that resonated very strongly with Satie. He went on to play cabaret there for three years and wore velvet suits everywhere he went, which gave him the nickname, The Velvet Gentleman. Satie was able to integrate cabaret and music hall into his classical pieces. He was instrumental in developing the cabaret genre in France. And he perpetuated the notion of freedom in both composition and thought. He earned the name Father of Cabaret. He didn't make a living in the classical music environment at all. He was a cafe pianist. And I think this is absolutely crucial for his music. We do see Satie in the 1890s writing pieces that I think were largely written for himself. We see him using one or two fairly religious aspects such as chorale textures 
but introducing very strong dissonances into them. Um, his piece Vexation, which is very well known, um, is a good case in point. He was also briefly involved in the Rosicrucian movement in the 1890s with a mystic called Sar Peladon, and he composed music um, for its services, either organ pieces or he wrote quite a lot of music for trumpets um, for this ensemble as well. In the 1890s, he joined the Rosicrucian Church. He was the official musician. Satie quickly became bored by the Rosicrucians and decided to create his own church, which he called the Metropolitan Church of Art of Jesus the Conductor. It was said to be against the high priest of Wagnerism. For this, he published an official manifesto that functioned as a soapbox which he used to rant against music critics. He later claimed it was a prank. Apparently, Satie had a hard time being serious in public. Satie supported his one-member church by playing at Le Chat Noir, where he met fellow composer Claude Debussy. Satie had strong influence over Debussy, instructing him to avoid all popular Wagnerian influences of the time. Satie explains. I explained to Debussy the necessity for a Frenchman to free himself from the Wagnerian adventure, which in no way corresponded to our national aspirations. And I told him that I was not anti-Wagner in any way, but that we ought to have our own music, if possible without sauerkraut. Why shouldn't we make use of the methods employed by Claude Monet, Suzanne, Toulouse-Lautrec, etc.? Larry Solomon said in his essay, Satie the First Modernist, that Satie's innovations came from his interest in medieval French music. Solomon wrote, He contemplated for long hours in the gloom of Notre Dame and studied chant and Gothic art in the Paris Bibliothèque Nationale. Satie's musical aesthetic is antithetical to Wagnerian emotional indulgence. Probably the person he had the longest continuous friendship with was Debussy. They met in the early 1890s in Montmartre. They had lunch together once a week for almost all their lives. And the relationship only went wrong after the first performance of Satie's ballet Parade. Debussy seemed to be somewhat jealous that Satie was finally achieving public success. But then again, we can say this was 1917. Debussy was seriously ill with cancer. Did he express himself in a way that he would have done had he been you know, perfectly well? I don't know. Um, so there was a bit of a breach in their relationship there. But actually, Satie was, um, he apologized to Debussy for getting annoyed with him. That was the one time he did actually apologize to somebody. But I think with most people, he got on with them up to a point, and then he would perhaps just say something that was misinterpreted or that he intended as a joke, and they just didn't want to know him anymore. W.C. and friend Maurice Ravel began writing Satie-inspired music that eventually morphed into French Impressionism. W.C. and Ravel only acknowledged Satie's influence many years later as firmly established composers. There was some controversy over who brought French modernist music into the public first. 
Solomon wrote that while W.C. may have come from a more conventional academic background than Satie, it is not all clear that his music would have developed its new vocabulary without contact with Satie. W.C. had romantic roots, and Satie, by contrast, broke from that romantic tradition dramatically, actually pointing the way for W.C. and the future of music in general. I think, though, um, Debussy was up to a point interested in what Satie was doing, harmonically speaking, as was Ravel, actually. And there's a direct influence in Ravel's music in his Mother Goose Suite. There's a movement of that based on the legend of the beauty and the beast, which people called the fourth gymnopédie. He's really taking the rhythm and harmony from Satie and reworking it in his own way. So very distinguished contemporaries of Satie's were genuinely influenced by his music. W.C. was reluctant to reveal his influence on him. Satie wrote, One person who isn't pleased is the good Claude. It's really his fault. If he had done sooner what Ravel, who makes no secret of the influence I had on him, has done, his position would be different. I'm not angry with him about it. He's a victim of social climbing. Why won't he allow me a very small place in his shadow? I have no use for this son. W.C. jealously made jokes about Satie and his music, which affected their friendship to the point that when W.C. died in 1918, Satie did not attend his funeral. One thing that was going on in Montparnasse in Paris during the First World War years was a whole load of artists who were interested in breaking down barriers between so-called high art and low art. Picasso is actually a good case in point. You look at some of his paintings from actually from 1905 onwards, and he's picturing circus artists, barrel organ artists, etc. He's really drawing from this popular culture of the streets. And really from the war years, we see writers such as Cocteau becoming interested in that. And Cocteau produced a small pamphlet in 1917 where he's recommending that composers should be inspired by music of the street. And he's using Satie as a role model for younger composers. In 1913, Satie wrote a play called Medusa's Trap. It is a very short play, around 25 minutes long in performance, in nine scores with seven tiny musical interludes, which were originally written for a piano, with a sheet of paper inserted between the strings to create a percussive effect. This is the first known example of a prepared piano. Medusa's Trap is viewed by many critics as a harbinger of surrealism or Dada. Nigel Wilkins described the play as a Dada drama. We see the Italian futurists coming to Paris in the early 1910s, and, you know, the French love a bit of avant-garde scandal. People coming along using all of these unconventional instruments. And if anything, the Italian futurists were better known for writing manifestos than for the actual music they produced. Sassy actually collaborated with just about the only woman who was associated with the futurist movement, uh, Valentine de Saint-Point. 
he wrote um, a piece called Les Pantins Dance, The Puppets Are Dancing, which was inspired by both her poetry and her movement on stage. What she wanted to do was to break down barriers between the arts. So I think the fact the Italian futurists were bringing in these unconventional noises inspired people around Sati like Cocteau, and we can see the result of that in their ballet collaboration, Pahad, um, the use of instruments that we do not traditionally, shall we say, associate with the orchestra. Anticipating the Dada movement by several years, says Henri Behar, Satie illustrates one of its key themes, the questioning of meaning. His language is constantly ridiculous, always changing register, turned upside down and creating confusion. The dances are not always connected with their titles. They feature frequent, strange rhythmic jolts and their length is not always specified. Satie was known for a lack of coordination between music and stage. He thought music should stand alone, he didn't want them getting into what he thought was a Wagnerian tradition of descriptive, hyper-expressive music, which Satie despised. His work did not easily reveal any definitive form. Satie's musical and poetic languages are peculiar and innovative. The work of a composer who is always recognizable, no matter what medium he uses. Satie didn't learn proper classical techniques until he was 40. Interestingly, this made his music even stranger. He would scribble strange directions all over his compositions. The names are even weird, like veritable flabby preludes for a dog. Sketches and exasperations of a big boob made of wood. Menus for childish purposes. And desiccated embryos, to name a few. The music he was writing in this period was a lot of these piano pieces with sometimes amusing texts. And as a result, I think Satie was often regarded as a buffoon. So because sometimes he was amusing, people use that as a shortcut. They just think, oh, he's a joker. He's always like that. Whereas in reality, he was like we all are, a highly complex person of very different moods. In 1917, Satie teamed up with poet Jean Cocteau and created the post-Wagnerian ballet called Parade. Forty-eight-year-old Satie and Cocteau got the idea when the two had met as witnesses in a wedding. According to Minnesota Public Radio, the charming Cocteau had attached himself to the ballet ruses, becoming, in one critic's word, a court jester and house pixie. Pablo Picasso designed the set and costumes, while Satie wrote the music. This circus-like ballet asks the question, how can an older art form like ballet draw an audience in the age of the cinema and pop music? While the public champion parade critics panned it and the piece outraged so many people that there was a riot the first night it opened, 
Satie, Cocteau, and their friends even found themselves facing a libel suit in court, which made them known as cultural anarchists. And we can see in their ballet collaboration, Parade from 1917, Satie is combining very academic forms such as the chorale and the fugue with much more sort of street entertainment music and with noises that we don't associate with music at all, such as gunshots and lottery wheels and typewriter. Satie actually served eight days of jail time. Parade became a cult hit thanks to outrageous sideshows and the notion that the music hall was invading high art. Satie's infamy ultimately attracted a circle of admirers, Les Nouveaux Jeunes, later known as Les Six. From then on, Satie was recognized as a legitimate composer. Satie had a profound influence on John Cage through his Vexations composition, written in 1893. Vexations consisted of only a half sheet of notation. The French composer had suggested at the top of his original manuscript that the motif be repeated 840 times, making his peers deem recitation of this piece impossible. Satie even warned those attempting to try it with a notation. It would be advisable to prepare oneself beforehand in the deepest silence by serious immobilities. John Cage, with his fascination with time and music, was the first to insist that this piece be performed. Vexations was unknown to the world until it was found in 1949 when one of Satie's associates brought it to Cage's attention. Some claim Satie's vexations was a long-running joke because he adored puns and pranks. Others say it was a dig on Richard Wagner, the popular German composer at the time whose fame disgusted Satie. And others thought it was the product of romantic despondence. It was written in the wake of Satie's split with Suzanne Veladon, a beautiful French painter who wore on her blouse a corsage of carrots and kept a pet goat in her studio. The breakup left Satie depressed and heartbroken. Some say it was the last sexual relationship he ever had. absolutely flummoxed by it he'd be completely shocked that and you know perhaps somewhat embarrassed as well because I think this was a work that was very very personal to him that was written when he was going through a difficult phase in the only ever romantic relationship he had and it is such a weird piece every other chord is dissonant and doesn't resolve as it should according to tonal laws. And it was written in 1893, remember. Also, I'm not sure it was written to be performed. 
It doesn't actually say on the score you should perform it 840 times. It says pour se jouer, which means to perform to yourself. So I think he saw it as a very sort of private, personal composition. And perhaps not something that's supposed to be just, I don't know, like sport, like a marathon for the pianist. It's notated in an incredibly unfriendly way for the performer, with all of these sharps and flats that don't resolve as they should. I've heard performers say that it's absolutely impossible to memorise. Almost the more you play it, the less you can memorise it. It's so weird. What Satie really intended with this piece, we'll never know. But it has left many contemporary composers addicted to it in the same way many are addicted to marathon running. John Cage began a trip into madness with his 18-hour-long concert in 1967 using a team of people. Nowadays, it has become a macho-type, one-man show. In December of 2012, a pianist named Nicholas Horvath gave a performance in Tokyo that lasted 35 hours. It was his eighth solo presentation of Vexations. No food or drink for three days before the Vexations, he explained to his fans in the comments section of his YouTube channel, where he posts six- and nine-hour segments of his marathon performances. Responding to a newcomer, he said, 28 hours is pretty nice indeed, but alone it is very hard. Pain starts past 6 hours, madness starts past 12 hours, hell starts past 20 hours. Forty years of bourbon and absinthe caught up with the composer. Satie became ill with cirrhosis of the liver and died in 1925. He was largely forgotten in the years following his death, but the resurfacing of his music in the 1960s through Cage, and other American minimalist artists gave him recognition as one of the founders of modern music. I think what's really interesting about Satie is that his legacy has been his ideas as much as his music. So we see people like Cage being inspired by ideas such as repetition and furniture music and background music and these ideas being taken on by later composers you could argue that minimalist composers have been very inspired by that aspect of his work you also see composers from different backgrounds being inspired by works such as the gymnopédie that's almost become a meme nowadays hasn't it you hear it all over the place in adverts and so on. And composers as different as Ravel, John Adams is inspired by the Gymnopédie and the second movement as piano, of his piano concerto. And also the Chinese composer Qigang Chen in his work Iris Dévoilé. That's got a Gymnopédie in it too, very much in his own style. So people have been both directly inspired by the music and taken his ideas and run with them in completely different directions, which just shows how strong his legacy is. Check out the playlist accompanying this episode featuring songs by Eric Setti at PressPlay on sonosphere.podcast.com. Subscribe on iTunes and check us out on Facebook and on Twitter at Sanospod. This has been an independent production of Sonosphere. 
produced by Amy S. and Chris Williams, and engineered by Ben Fiss. With special thanks to Dr. Carolyn Potter, Ben Seiler, and Megan Avery. Thanks for listening.